Well, we are on session seven tonight, believe it or not, as we're, we're looking at this strange new world that we're, we're living in. The title, based on this, this book that we are going through by Carl Truman, which is a, a smaller version of the even larger work that, that he did, unless you enjoy reading and really like uh, philosophy and those types of things, you probably do well to stick with this smaller version of the book, but just so you'll know that there is another one out there um, that is, that, that's helpful and as good as a resource. I hope this time actually has been helpful for you. And tonight, we're actually going to wrap up the, the, uh, the book portion and to provide some specific application. So that won't end tonight. It will begin tonight, the application portion. And so I'll walk you through the big picture. So, okay, what is the church supposed to do? In this, in this strange new world. Biblically, how do you respond uh, to something like this? Is this new? Is this something the church has never dealt with? And, and if so, then, then, then surely God has given us instructions in the Scriptures uh, in order to, you know, to, to model it, and tell us what, to, what we're supposed to, to do. So that'll begin tonight, big picture. And then next week we'll focus on, so what do you do if, you're, if you personally are wrapped up in, you know, in maybe some of the things that you've been thinking about the book, uh, whether it's uh, wrong thinking that comes from a psychiatric perspective or um, you know, some of the, 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 uh, the gender issues or, or l- looking at self too much. I mean, how does a person change? So that will be next Sunday night. I think Mark is, uh, is doing that. How does a person change? You know, somebody who buys into all of this, is it possible for them to, to, to change? Uh, how does that happen? How does change actually happen in a person? Which then you'll have applications for the wider culture as well because how a person changes, how people change, then how that can affect the, the culture at, uh, at large. Then after that, it will be, how do I help others change? So how does a person change? And then, okay, what do I do? How, how do I help people uh, go through that process of change? And then finally, the final section on application will be evangelism in the, the strange new world. That will be our very last session. And, of course, we'll do uh, Q&As to the extent that we have time uh, to do that at the, uh, at the end. So that's, that's where we're, we're headed tonight in the next uh, few weeks. Let me, let me start this way. I would assume most of you tonight are members of Timberlake Baptist Church. If, if you're not and you're a believer, um, then you're, you're a member somewhere, I would, I, I would assume. And because you are, you are the church of, of Jesus Christ. Um, the church, there is a universal church. There's a, a church that's made up of all believers of, of all time. The Bible calls them the elect and and there are some living, there are some in heaven that we, we sang about t- tonight. We'll join the saints on high. There are some who will be saved. There, there are some in America. There are some in Ukraine. They're all over the world. Uh, and God knows exactly who those, those, those people are. So there is the, the universal church, the, the church of Jesus Christ as a whole. But then the Bible talks about the, a local church, a local assembly or, or a, a local group of individuals that, that have 
that have covenanted together in, in membership. This is, this is my church, and I'm, I'm under these elders, and this is uh, my family that I'm going to, to live out the, the commands of, of Scripture. And we do that at, at Timberlake, imperfectly for sure. But what I want you to, to know is that you're part of something eternal. You're part of something indestructible. You're part of something that has a guaranteed victory. And that's very important to remember as things shift around you and, and um, things ebb and flow and the culture changes and uh, uh, political um, outcomes go this way or they go that way. Just, just always remind yourself you're part of something in the church that's eternal. It's indestructible. It's, it has a guaranteed victory. Jesus Christ said in Matthew 16, I will build my church. And the gates of of Hades, the grave, shall not overpower it, won't overcome it. So the gospel is not affected by death, just like we sang tonight. The church will go beyond the grave. It'll go beyond this world. The the, the church is the only thing that that is eternal. We, We sing about our families, you know, will the uh, will a circle be unbroken? And uh, we surely hope that it does not. We, we love our families. The Bible instructs us about how to have biblical families. But, but the Bible says that the gospel can actually bring a sword to your family. It can actually separate the family rather than bringing it together because some people may be believers and, and some people may, may not be believers. Marriage itself is for the earth. Jesus said you'll not be given in marriage in heaven. Um, you'll be like the angels, which as we said doesn't mean you'll have wings and pluck a harp. It, it means that the, the angels in the eternal state aren't married. Marriage is specifically a gift that God has given and responsibilities that God has given for the earth. And so when you're in heaven, there won't be any purpose for marriage any longer. But the church is eternal. The church of Jesus Christ will be gathered around the throne, around the Lamb who's on the throne, and worship Him for all eternity, having washed our robes white with the, with the blood of, uh, of the Lamb. And Jesus is building His church, and His church will continue to be built no matter what happens in the world, how strange it gets. And, and that church will, will go right into eternity, right into heaven. And you'll populate the church in heaven uh, as you die here and as you appear there. Uh, and the Lord will go right on building it. In that same passage, Matthew 16, Jesus declared He would build the church, and He would build that on the truth of uh, the, that He was the Christ, the, the Son of the, the, the living God. He was the promised one who would die for sins and then raise in glorious victory. And, and then Jesus sends out His twelve apostles that, that He chose to proclaim that message. So now we're talking about how Christ goes about building His church. He made the promise, I will do it. So how did He do it? Well, he, he, he proclaimed that, that he's the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he sends out the twelve apostles to, to do that, to proclaim that message. There is witnesses. That's what the book of Acts describes. It's what we call the Great Commission. They're fulfilling the, the Great Commission. We go into all the world and we make disciples. We baptize the ones that believe and the ones that follow. And we teach them the entirety of, of God's Word. And all of the story of who Jesus was and what he did is contained in the Gospels. And then the book of Acts tells us about the witness and, and what the, the work looks like. And the rest of the epistles in the New Testament give us specific instructions about that. And Jesus is still building his, his church. He's evangelizing outside of the church and 
He's edifying and equipping inside of the church. There are no apostles and prophets today. They laid the foundation of the church in the book of Acts. And then evangelists and pastors and teachers have taken over for that work of evangelizing outside and edifying and equipping inside, which is where you come in. Because as members of this church, God uses you to accomplish both of those tasks. You're part of the evangelizing outside and the equipping inside. Whether that's working on Sunday, whether that's speaking the truth and love to one another, I mean, ministry in the church is done by, by the church. I am to equip you, the elders are to equip you to do the work of the, of the ministry. Or whether that's sharing Jesus at work, or, or living a biblical life, or suffering well, or dying well, or whatever else it, it might be. God accomplishes His purposes through means, and you're part of those means. You have no authority outside of yourself. Jesus didn't say, I will build my personal ministry or my Christian school or my whatever else. He said, I will build my church. And you're part of that church. But the work of building that church involves equipping and evangelizing. So even more importantly than, than representing, say, Timberlake Baptist Church in the various ways uh, I've mentioned, you're a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ as one of His followers. Which means that you have already bought into the first point of this message tonight. It means that you've already bought into the fact that His Word is your authority. Or to say it this way, I don't have to convince you tonight to look to the Bible for the answers. Um, or to listen to what the Bible says. I may use the gift of teaching to explain it to you, and the Spirit may illuminate that to you, but I don't have to tell you where to look for for authority, you have already accepted the lordship of Jesus Christ if you're saved. And in the book of Acts, when the apostles preached the good news of the, of the gospel, they proclaimed Jesus of Nazareth, the one you crucified, God raised from the dead, and He is both Lord and Christ. He's both God, He's your Lord, meaning He's your authority, and He's your Savior. He's the one who saves you from your, your sin. And you don't get one without the other, by the way. You can't take Jesus as your ticket to heaven and, and not accept Him as the, the Lord. He's now your master, as well as the one who rescued you from, from judgment. And what that looks like in life is you follow His Word. You place yourself under the authority of the Bible, which is His words, and that's what a Christian does with all the aspects of life, including the things like we've been going over in this book. Or to say it simply, you believe as a Christian that the Bible rightly interprets reality. And that's what you're to do with anyone that you interact with as well. You, 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 you tell them, you remind them that Jesus is Lord and Jesus is Christ and the Bible are His words. You say, well, what if they don't listen to me? You tell them that Jesus is Lord and that He's Christ and the Bible is His word. You say, well, what if it doesn't produce results? You tell them that Jesus is Lord and He's the Savior and the Bible is His Word. You can't do anything beyond that. The work that's done in the heart of somebody else to bring a dead sinner to life is done by the Holy Spirit. What you have are the tools, and the only tools that God's given you is the gospel and the Word of Christ. Those two things, the Bible when the Bible reveals the gospel to us. And then you labor 
bringing the hearts and soul and minds under the authority of, of the Bible, including the areas of this book. So, so how do you do that? What are some specific ways the church does the evangelizing and the edifying or bringing people under the authority of the words of Jesus in the matters of self, in the matters of sexuality, in the matters of, of politics? And before I answer that, let me give you a, just a recap of where we've been. So in case you're, you're, you're new to the process, I came along and introduced this strange new world to you. Mark then showed us the way that it all started was this inward turn toward a psychologized self. I mean, society turned from objective criteria that comes from the outside, which governed life, to inward subjective authority uh, based on feelings and, and, and desires. And your true self is, your, the true you is found there. It's found in self. And then Tim came along and helped us understand the development of that within society. How it went from inside to, to society as a, as a whole. The Rousseau and the Romantics and Karl Marx. And, and the shift there had to do with the nature of mankind. And so it moved from looking inward instead of outward. To, and the Romantics came along and, and said, what you'll find inside is, is basically good. Um, the philosophers of this age taught people that, that you're inherently good internally, and then you're corrupted by society. And if that's true, then what comes from within ought to be trusted, and what is imposed from without is to be rebelled against. And that was a major shift in our world from a a traditional and biblical view that said the, the opposite. I mean, the Bible says people are inherently sinful, and that God restrains that sinfulness through things like the government and parents and law and Common decency and morality and all of those other things. That doesn't save you. Your parents don't save you. The government doesn't save you. A common law doesn't, doesn't save you, but actually restrains what's, what's in your heart. Don't trust your heart. It's, it's deceitful above all things. That's what the Bible says. So therefore, the role of education under that system is to teach children not to trust their feelings and to restrain what naturally comes from within. And in the romantic shift, the goal of education now became to teach children to express what comes from within their heart and actually be suspicious of not what's inside, but what's outside and external authority and actually rebel against it if, if need be. This past week, I was, I was in an airport and um, there was a TV thing for the Today Show and they were doing this uh, new preschool program. I don't even know where it was. It was somebody, somewhere in a in a big city, and they had the children start every day at, at, at preschool, four-year-olds. They had a big mirror in the classroom, and every child started, this, started the, the day before the class. They came in, they hung up their book bag, and then they stood in front of the mirror, and they said, I am powerful. I am enough. And they recited all of this, this self-esteem mantra. Uh, and then the teacher encouraged them, encouraging them to do that. And then, and then they went and they sat down. And when I first saw that, I thought, you know, <laughs> number one, that's not what my mother told me to do. Um, she helped me in other ways. Uh, but um, I, 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 it, was, it was almost laughable 
Like, what are you doing? And, and until it, it, it sunk in what was actually going on. They were practicing religion. They were practicing the, the religion of, of the worship of self. I am God. I am powerful. I am enough. Um, which is what came through the Romantics. Then I came back and explained how the sexualization of self and the, became the politici, politici, politicization, I'll get that out, of sex with Freudian psychology and how then sex became the definition of self. If you look within and your desires are your authority, what is our greatest desire? Our greatest desire is, is our sexual desires and then, then how politics became centered on sex through Wilhelm Reich. And then Michael came along and um, talked about plastic people and liquid world. Uh, we've talked about uh, identity is adaptable now. The common bonds that have typically united people, even from very different backgrounds, different skin colors, different everything. We, we've torn that down because we've focused inwardly. And there's a new way of learning, so things like tradition, things like nationalism, things like Religion or family frameworks have all been rejected and been replaced with self, which is entirely plastic and shiftable. And now everything is open to be redefined. And because of that, we're, we're to use the term that everybody likes, we're tribalized all over the place. This little group and that little group, this identity and that, that identity, rather than what used to hold us together regardless. What used to hold us together was some external structure, things that we all identified with rather than what I identify with and what you identify with, and you know how that goes. Everything is open to be redefined all the way down to our bodies, and, and it's defined by expressive individualism. And then Jacob spoke last time about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, culture now says, because my feelings and the preservation of my created identity are the most important things, then the freedoms of others may need to be restricted in order to thwart any political harm that could come upon me. And you listen to all that and you say, what a mess, right? Um, so what do we do about it? What does God want us to do? How does God want us to respond to the, the cultural tides that, that shift and in this case are, are rising in one specific Direction. That's what I'm going to talk about tonight. Now, I'd like to offer five things to you um, tonight. The assignment of the of the church. There we go. Five responses of the church, or you could say Christians, to this strange new world. What is a Christian to do as a stranger and pilgrim in this strange new world? Well, the first thing I would say is trust in the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. Where would you even start with a topic like this? What, what's a Christian supposed to do? What's a church supposed to do? You can go a lot of different directions, but I think the first thing that you, you need to do is nail down your trust in the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. I mean, you have to settle the authority issue because if you don't, you're not going to know where to look whenever it gets confusing, and it can get very confusing, as you've seen. Or as James says, a double-minded man is what? unstable in all of his ways. And so everyone has an authority. Everyone we re we've read about, every group that we've talked about, identified with this or that, for them the authority was self or feelings or philosophers or sexual desires. But our authority as Christians is the Bible, which is why I started there. 
even in the introduction. It's the Creator's perspective, and it's right. And I hope you understand as you listen to this book that, that these two ways of looking at life are not compatible. There's one consistent biblical way. There's one way that the Creator has designed life. The Creator knows best. The Creator has recorded it in His Word. And all the world has done is ebbed from side to side and all over the place. But this has been, this has been consistent. Those two things are not compatible. In fact, it's just the opposite. They're diametrically opposed to each other. What that means is any attempt to merge the two or compromise or find the middle ground is futile. And that's what some well-intentioned Christians, I'm afraid, attempt to do. And it's just not possible. I mean, you must understand that fact and not take it personal. Don't take it personal whenever they... They, they call you a racist or a bigot or, or whatever else it, it, it might be. That also takes conviction, though, doesn't it? And conviction is just another word of being immovably convinced of something. And you're immovably convinced of something because you have a fixed authority as a Christian that, that doesn't change. It takes grit. It looks like grit. It looks like stability in the face of alternative perspectives. I mean, if you can be easily moved, then it's, then it's not a, a conviction might be something that you think or that you believe, but it's not a conviction. And as Christians, we're convinced that God is right. And we're convinced that He does right. And we're convinced that He's good. You shouldn't be ashamed of that in any way. I mean, you believe that God is right, which means that other people are wrong. It doesn't mean that you're right and other people are wrong. It means that God's right and other people are wrong. And right along with that, that God is good. God's wise, all of those other attributes about, about God. And if you waffle in any way, you, you've already lost this, this war. I mean, if you think that there are two options or two ways of looking at, at life, you think you're going to be caught in this futility that attempts to merge two irreconcilable realities. So number one, you trust in the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. You're, that's your authority. You've got you to nail that down. The second one comes from Truman in his book. If you read it, you know this is, this is in, in the chapter on the church's response. Truman suggests that we understand our complicity to what's going on in the culture and repent. Now, at first glance, you might read that and you might think, I'm not complicit. I mean, I don't believe these things. Or you may amen what... What, uh, what Truman says. That's right, the church hasn't done anything to change the culture or to win the war. Just sitting back doing nothing but preach the gospel. You might be on one of those two, two poles even, even tonight. But as you read further what Truman says in, in the book, and you realize what he's talking about, it, 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 it's what I would term as cultural leakage. Not participating... It's acknowledging and repenting of the ways that the spirit of this age has seeped into our thinking without us even recognizing it as the church. What the Bible calls worldliness. It's a very biblical term. John, see if I can pull up my verse here. John 2, 1 John 2, 26. For all that is in the world and the, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. You see the, the two poles there. They're not blended together. Not from the Father, but from the world. 
Now, when you, you, when you think of that, when you think of the word, word worldliness, when you hear the term worldly or you read that verse, which is a very common verse, what, what comes to your mind? I mean, isn't the temptation to jump right to some application or practice? Um, I'm worldly if I, uh, or 50 years ago, I'd be worldly if I danced. Um, maybe 10 years ago in some Baptist churches, right? Or going to bad movies or, um, or some other things, wearing certain clothes, uh, the length of a skirt or whatever. That's, that's worldly. Uh, we immediately jump to practices, probably, whenever we, we hear that term. But I want you to notice in this verse that the Bible doesn't give us a list of practices. It gives us categories of desires that defines worldliness. Because the issues don't come from outside of us. They come from within us. That's, that's, that's where the, 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 the battleground of worldliness happens. It's in our hearts. I mean, the problems are, are not external first, but they're internal. I'm not saying that they're not bad things out in the world that you need to protect yourself from and, and guard your heart from, but, but that's the point. You're guarding your heart. It's not external first. Worldliness is an external uh, problem first. It's an internal problem. Long before the behavior comes out, there's a desire that has given birth to it in the heart, or which is why James said to stop fornicating with the, with the world. Did you ever think of that? You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? You, you, again, there's two poles. They can't be blended together. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And he talks about spiritual adultery. Stop fornicating with the world. You're going to have an ugly baby if you do that, what James says. Chapter 1, sin conceives and it brings, uh, or lust conceives and it brings forth sin, and, and sin leads to death. And so that's what James is, is talking about. So what are the categories of, of desires that, that, that he gives us here? Before he goes to the practices. Well, the lust of the flesh. It's what the flesh craves, the flesh desires. That word can be good or bad. A desire, an intense desire can be an intense desire for something good. But whenever we use the term, it can also mean something bad. And in this case, what the flesh craves. The lust of the eyes. What the eyes desire. The eyes see something, it's a, and it's a, it's a window into your soul. It, it's a way to imagine what, what you actually you want. And then the pride of life, what we value. Of course, practices flow out of desires, but God wants us to understand that worldliness is, is a way of thinking before it's a, it's a group of practices. Worldliness is to imbibe the world's system of values, which comes with its, its thinking. I mean, it, it's to be conformed to the cosmos, which is the world, the word for for, for world. Wrong aims, corrupted values. We talked before how that word, the word, the Greek word for world cosmos is where we get cosmetics, where you ladies arrange your faces every morning. The, the world has a system that, that is a specific arrangement. And the world system has wrong aims. It has corrupted values that come from fallen rationale, which is Satan's anti-wisdom. And that's where the complicity comes in. As the church and Christians, we have allowed ourselves to think like the world in many ways. To desire, to value, to have fallen rationale about things, things that are like the world. This is like the example, you might not even try to do it. You might fight against it. Just like Romans 5 this morning. 
how we, we, we're naturally bent toward human love when we think about God's love. We want to define God's love in human terms. And so you have to sit into the preaching of the Word and, and focus on a passage like Romans 5 to correct that because you just, you're naturally drawn to that, which is what Romans 12 means. You're not conformed. It's constantly pressing you. And you, you, know, you, you don't have to always worry about the enemy out there. You, you, you lay down with the enemy every night. And it, that's not your spouse. It's, it's you. It's your own heart. You carry your heart around with you. And so you're not to be conformed to the cosmos. You're to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And and there's no coasting in that. You're constantly renewing your mind. You're constantly thinking the ways of, of God. We just do it. We don't even know we do. Truman suggests the focus on self, though, and our desires is the major way the world system has leaked into the church related to this book, related to, to think about the transfer of authority from God, from out there to in here, what we want, our desires define us and define life, what's important to us. He says that's the way that the worldliness has leaked into the church. We call it consumer Christianity, one term. What we like has become the primary driver for the Christian life, how we pick a church, to the kind of preaching we listen to, to the way we find a ministry, to the books that we read, or to say it another way, Christianity has become very man-centered instead of God-centered and word-focused. We're far too inwardly turned, Truman says. We're concerned about how we feel and what we enjoy, and, and we look for churches and sermons and pastors that will actually fulfill those desires. It's what the Bible calls having itching ears, or in this case, having itching music styles or scratching sermon lengths or whatever. But in this strange new world, gone are those days. Gone are the days of fluffy Christianity. It won't, it won't withstand. Um, consumer Christianity uh, won't hold up under the winds of, of something like, like we're facing right now and, and are going to continue to face. I mean, that's why church attendance is plummeting. It's not because Christians are abandoning the church or organized religion, like you'll, you'll read in USA Today or wherever else. It's because the, these so-called church leaders for, for about 50 years have designed sanctified goat pens instead of real churches where they're aimed at attracting unbelievers. And now those unbelievers are leaving the church whenever it fails to give them what they, they desire. I mean, the reason people didn't go back to church after COVID was not because the, the church didn't offer them something that they wanted. It's because the church did offer them something that they wanted before COVID. And they can get that in the world. And I don't even have to get out of bed on Sunday morning or, you know, throw a couple dollars in the offering plate whenever it, it goes around. But what we want won't sustain us in a hard life. I mean, the vast majority of what we pump out and practice in American Christianity has no bearing or value whatsoever in the rest of the world. I mean, if you're a, a, a Ukrainian in a gulag in Russia, a copy of your best life now is worthless, isn't it? I mean, think about that. I mean, Joyce Myers is not going to help you whenever you're, you're in the persecuted church in China. And so Truman says we must repent. And retrain our palates for what we need, not what makes us feel good. I have people ask, um, 
lots of questions at, at, at times, but some, like, why do, do the pastors at, at Timberlake preach 50-minute expository sermons from the Bible and go into all of that detail and study and do all of those things? I mean, nobody wants to sit there that, that long. Nobody will sit there that long. Intention spans aren't that long. You surf on your phones, and some of you do. Um, what's wrong with preaching stuff that people want to hear? What makes them want to come to church? And my response is usually something like this. I mean, why would I prepare food for goats to keep them as goats whenever I can prepare food for sheep to make them sheep? I mean, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. Genuine Christians actually want the Bible. Now, I may be boring every now and then. I may not put it together, but, but believers actually want to hear the truth. Whenever they hear the truth, they say, that's it. Give me more of that. And unbelievers are only converted by the word of Christ anyway. And so actually giving them what they want is not going to convert them, which is why they're leaving churches in groves because people gave them what they wanted and it didn't do anything for them spiritually in their lives. So give them the scriptures and unleash the power of the, of the Bible. Repent. Number three, Truman says you should learn church history, which, of course, I like that, given the fact that I enjoy church history. Truman called the, the learning from the ancient church. And the goal here is, is not to return to some idealistic age in, in history, whether, whether that would be you know, the 1950s or the Reformation or whatever it might be. It, it's to learn from it. And he suggested going all the way back to the bedrock, going all the way back to the apostles, in particularly during the apostolic age. Because during that time, Christianity was little understood, it was despised, and it was a marginalized sect. I mean, during that period of time, Christians were dismissed, hated, and underappreciated. And Truman says it's the same today. We're racist, irrational bigots, and dangers to society. And so like them, you have to prepare for persecution on the outside, and you have to prepare for heresy on the inside of the church. I mean, you must endure the persecution from outside of the church. You can't, you can't fold like a handkerchief. You, you must confront the error within the church, just like the early church did. I mean, in fact, that's how the church stayed pure and how it grew strong in, in church history in those days. God purified it, actually purified it through the pressures outside, and He clarified its doctrines through the errors. And that's a good work that God's even doing right now while there's the bad work of error and oppression going on. I mean, God grows His church. And God helps His church to think rightly in these kinds of times. I mean, how did the early church stay unified and strong? Well, they had to. It wasn't easy to be a Christian. And how did the, the early church clarify the details about, about doctrine like humanity and the deity of Christ? It was by being forced to deal with error inside the church that, that crept inside the, the church. And how will the modern church be purified from all of its impurities and half-hearted followers? Well, it will no longer be culturally acceptable to be a Christian. 
And the church will have to clarify its responses to the, that cultural error that, that's crept in. I mean, I don't know. I mean, had you ever even heard of the term woke 15 years ago? And now you hear it all the time. And you probably somewhere along the line said, what is that? And then you started obviously feeling it all around you. And then you have to say, well, is that biblical or is that not? And you have to kind of pull that apart. Because in one sense, you have Black Lives Matter or, or people that are talking about wokeism, saying racism is bad and racism is bad. It's real. It's bad. So how do I, how do I pull that apart and say this is biblical and, and, and this is not? Well, you're forced to deal with error, and so you're, you then define that, and you clarify your own thinking. And the church will have to clarify its responses to the cultural error that, that's crept in. You have to think hard and write hard on, on those kinds of topics, and even the topics like whatever has been in this book. I mean, you used to say homosexuality is bad. God made men, God made women, or even, you know, simplified it. God made Adam and, and Eve, not Adam and Steve. I mean, how many times do you hear that from the pulpit? I mean, and, and that was it. But that doesn't fly anymore. How, why? How? People are asking questions, that, 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 and the Scripture addresses them. It's no time for unprepared and lazy preachers, and it's no time for Christians that like them or are lazy and unprepared themselves. Um, number four, you must be in a church that teaches, which, by God's grace, we are. And one that teaches the whole counsel of God. One that reclaims its doctrine. And its pastors and its pulpits teach those things. John MacArthur, years ago, during the um, seeker-sensitive movement, said that the modern church has spiritual AIDS. And the AIDS virus doesn't kill you. Something else does. The AIDS virus destroys your, your body's ability to fight, to fight off the disease, and so you actually succumb to the disease. It destroys your immune system. And he said the church could die of a thousand heresies because it has no doctrinal immune system. And if you want to apply it to this book, we focused on ourselves and our feelings for so long, we don't, we don't even know what doctrine we lost. And we need to recover doctrine. And we don't even know what we're missing. So we don't know what to go back and teach now. I mean, think about it. If you came from another church or somewhere outside, when was the last time you, you heard a sermon on reconciliation or imputation or, or the atonement? Or maybe listen to something like that on the radio. And you might be sitting here, and I don't even know what those words mean, and I don't even care to know what those words mean. I want to go to church and hear something that helps me. I just want the pastor to give me something that's immediately practical and not eternally relevant. And the problem with that is what will actually stabilize your life or help you through this coming week is the steel of doctrine and understanding it. No wispy, weak preaching will, will do that for you. And you're called to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And you have to renew your mind. I don't care whether you like to read or not. Listen to an audio book or do something. You must learn whatever God's commanded, and you have to think hard and be equipped, or you'll twist in the wind. And churches have to teach their people. And they teach their as they teach their children. 
and they teach the world as being a model. I mean, that is one of the primary purposes of the church. It's the reason the pulpit is right here in the middle of the church. It's the reason we bring the communion table out once a month whenever we do communion and we put it up. But the, the primary fixture in the church, all eyes are on the pulpit because from the pulpit is the exposition of God's Word. That, that's, that's when, when you, of course you can read the Bible on your own. You should read the Bible on your own. But God has ordained the preaching, the proclamation of His Word. And as you, the church gathers together, and there's something that happens in the, in the, the gathering of the saints. You're, you're, you're provoking yourselves to, you know, to love and, and, and good works. And the Spirit of God is inhabiting us individually and collectively when we are duly constituted together as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God speaks to His people and God speaks from His Word. There's something that happens there. And, and you have to be under that on a regular basis. And that preaching doesn't just stir you up emotionally. That's not bad. That's good. God gave you emotions. You, you should be passionate about that. But, but, but that passion should come from, from, from understanding, from teaching. You're taught what to think, what not to think, what to do, what not to do from the authority. So you have to settle that authority. And so that's the focus of the church. And then you must be engaged, I think, in, in, in training. I mean, if the church hopes to be faithful to Christ and do these things that we've listed above, if you hope to help children in our Sunday school classes, if you hope to help your own children, then, then we must train, specifically men for ministry and children in our homes and in, and in our case, strong Christian schools. I mean, as Wisely once said, as goes the pulpit, so, so goes the people. One of the first... Uh, I guess you would call it a case study. Research that I did um, whenever I, I pastored the very first church I ever took. I was an independent Baptist um, guy, you know, and I, I don't mean the one that, you know, that, that sweat and, and, and wiped their head, just I wasn't part of a denomination. The church I came from was a, just a Bible church. And my pastor was an independent missionary Baptist, so that, that's what I was, Baptistic in doctrine, believe the Bible, preach the Bible, want to see people saved and, and, and go to heaven. But the first church I went to was a, a Southern Baptist church, and they knew that's not what I was. And so I'm thinking, oh, what am I getting myself into? I mean, is, so we're laying all these things out on the table when we're talking about it, and I'm, and I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing research. And in that process, learning... How the Southern Baptist Convention back, back during the times of, of Adrian Rogers uh, um, recovered the SBC from liberalism. Of course, it's changing and slipping, you know, those types of things today, but how did that happen? And they focused on getting the, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention as a, as, a, as a conservative, somebody who actually believed in the Bible because... In the seminary in Richmond and, and in Su at Southern Seminary, I mean, they were pumping out people that didn't even believe that Moses wrote the first books of the Bible. Rank liberalism, denying miracles and those types of things. And they knew that if they were ever going to change things, then, then they needed to have that person there because in that system, then that guy is the one who selects 
committee on committees or the executive committee, and then that's the one who ends up setting the board of trustees of the seminaries, and the board of trustees of the seminaries actually choose the, the professors, and then the professors actually teach the, the students in the pulpit, uh, the students in the classroom who will then be in the pulpits who are then going to teach the people. And that's exactly what I'm talking about here, but not with the denomination. And if the church hopes to be faithful to Christ, it has to train men for the pulpit and children at home and in churches. We have to train men with biblical clarity and, and, and conviction. And before they get there, they, they have to have a foundation. Um, which is where TES and TCS come in. TCS is a ministry that attempts to do that. Expositor Seminary is a ministry of this church that attempts to, to train pastors because of the role of the church is to equip the saints. And as a church, one of the ways that we do that is through the Christian school and through that seminary. And God hasn't delegated that responsibility to a university or anyone else. He's given it to the church, so we do it right here in the church. And we do that for our own Christian families that we have spiritual responsibility for. It's also why one of our elders, Jeff Abbott, is, is, is over, the, over the school, and why the church supports the school, why the doctrine and the philosophy of the school comes from this, this church. We do that, and we provide a service to the, to the community. We invite, invite others to join us, and you're part of that. You have that opportunity to transform minds and on, on that level. And help people teach the right way, even some ways that, are, that you've learned in, in this book. But, but you can't do that if you don't know it yourself or you're weak doctrinally. I mean, you, you have to pursue the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and, and strength. So, that might be able, so you might be able to help people navigate this strange new world. I mean, the only way that you do that, actually, is to have two feet planted in the new world that's coming. The world that's ruled by the Lord Jesus Christ who is a risen king who's coming again. And when he comes, there'll be no error or, or rebellion. There will be peace forevermore. I think if you wanted to summarize all five of these, of these things, I mean, the answer to the culture is biblical churches. Biblical churches that preach the gospel and operate on a, on a biblical basis. It's not us withdrawing. It's remaining in it and obeying the Lord Jesus Christ and holding up his word and his gospel. Let me close with this. Um, I don't know, maybe a year or more ago, our elders uh, wrote a position paper on the woke movement. It's titled, Why We're Not Woke. It was a big, long one, almost like Truman's book. Some of you read, maybe five of you, I don't know. We read it because we wrote it. And then there's the, the short version, shorter version, which is actually bulleted. Um, it's on our website. We don't do that for everything, because if you did that, then you're just chasing everything that comes down the cultural, cultural pike. But something that stays around, something that's actually going to affect the church, like the seeker-sensitive movement. Wokeism is just another derivative of that. That's going to hang around. It affects the church. It affects you. I've said before, we're not the pastors of Lynchburg or the world at large or the blogosphere. We're, we're your pastors. So our job in thinking through that is how do we help you think biblically uh, uh, about that um, and so we wrote that that paper if you haven't read it I would encourage you to, to read it but I think the final reason that we gave is is relevant to 
to the response of the church to the strange new, new world. This, this is what we said about wokeism. This is the final list, final number in the list of why we are not woke as a church. We reject the woke movement because it saps the church of its strength and effectiveness. When the fundamental tenets of wokeism or wokeness are allowed into the church, it will not be long before the methods of wokeness take hold in significant ways. And when this happens, the church will become diverted from its mission and greatly damaged in its effectiveness. The church will become an institution for social and political change rather than the pillar and buttress of the truth. Its methods will center around fixing inequalities through earthly means rather than proclaiming the pure gospel of Christ, which alone creates a truly unified people. Its goal will become remedying social disparities rather than seeing lives transformed through the gospel. And the result will be the glory of man, which ends in his damnation rather than the glory and praise of God through Christ, which results in man's greatest need. I think you can actually just change a few words in that and apply it to to this lesson tonight. We focus on something other than, when we focus on something other than being a biblical church in a strange new world, the church will become diverted from its mission and greatly damage its effectiveness. The church will become an institution for social or political change rather than the pillar and buttress of truth. Its methods will center around fixing cultural issues through earthly means rather than proclaiming the pure gospel of Christ, which alone creates a truly unified people. Its goal will become remedying social ills rather than seeing lives transformed through the gospel. And as a result, the result will be the glory of man, which ends in damnation, rather than the glory and praise of God, which results in man's greatest need. And we dare not do that. So that's the big picture, high level. We'll talk about how does, do I change, how, does, how do I help somebody else change, and how do I evangelize. But we have a few minutes. I know it's confusing. Okay, That's what the Bible says. How does this work out actually in, in life? And so throw me some questions, and I'll try to make, it even, make you even more confused than you already are. Thoughts? Questions? All right. Then I'll pray. Yes, ma'am. Praise the Lord.
were you buttering me up before you asked a bad question? Or? Well, I think you just answered it right there. You need to pray for discernment because we're, we're not authorities. We have no authority other than the scriptures. And so we have to discern the scriptures. And, you know, there are some matters that are very clear. And then there are others like, you know, like some of the things we're talking about tonight. I mean, even as you prepare for something like this, I mean, you can go in a bunch of different directions. I mean, you don't just kind of threw in there at the end. You don't withdraw you know, so we're focused on the church and we're focused on the, you know, on the gospel, but you still need to take whatever means that you, that God has rightfully given you as a, as a citizen to, to try to, to stem whatever tide that you can, but no, the, 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 the sea is rising because it's a, you know, it's a satanic sea and it, and it's coming. Just, just remember that you're in the, the ship of Zion on that sea and it's not going to sink. That's that. That's where people are going to look to whenever they, they, you know, they start drowning. So discerning, you know, even in that, and then I think protection, um, purity, integrity, uh, you know, unity. I mean, the two things that are that are focused on the, the, the you find over and over in the scriptures is the unity of the church and the purity of the church. I think you say, pray the same thing for the elders, the unity of the elders and the purity, you know, of the elders. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you can, you know, in one sense you can say Satan is, you know, attacks leadership and, and those kind of things, but Satan's attacking all of us. And so, um, but, you, yeah, men, human beings, families, you know, otherwise. So pray for, for that discernment of understanding the scriptures and then, you know, we don't we don't ever want to be the the authority or or unwieldy in that. I mean, you all are made in the image of God. The Holy Spirit lives in every one of you, just like He, he lives in in the elders. And we have the same authority, being the the Bible. It doesn't mean that God hasn't set apart people to shepherd and lead, but but um, you know, it, it's not our job to. Uh, or red meat out there, try to convince you of certain things. It's our job to instruct you in the scriptures so that you can then be, you know, be a Berean. And, and you can trust the Bible. It's, you know, it's, it's worn out. It's an anvil that's worn out many, you know, many that have tried to, you know, to wrangle with it. So you don't have to be afraid uh, and just preaching whatever it, you know, whatever it says. But, but, yeah, there are things that come. You, It's usually not the ones that you're prepared for. It's the ones that you're waylaid by. Um, you know, you get sucker punched and think things are going well and or in your life and you you know, you, you kinda get hit. So I know I'm I'm just kinda bleeding here, but that's good. Pray for our discernment, pray for our purity, unity, pray for the church, pray for those same things. Um I mean the Lord's building his church and he's doing that that here and it's not a it's not a Sunday that goes by. There's not somebody new here. There's not somebody new or somebody who stayed that said, I've been to 15 different churches, or, or this is the truth, or the Lord saved me, and, I mean, just give me more. And so um, we just want to be faithful in that. But So that wasn't setting me up at all. That was a wonderful question. So should have known that was coming from you.
Yes, sir. No. Sure. Yes, yeah, so there's a bunch of things in there. First of all, I, I, the latter days are from the times of the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And it's very true that there are positive changes that, that, that can happen. And that's what I was meaning there earlier, where we're commanded um, not, to, not to withdraw completely from the world. You're in the world, but, but not of the world. Revival is something that, that God grants. It's surely something to, to pray for. It's surely something to you know to seek, and I heard a old preacher say a long time ago, you know, when you're praying for revival, draw a circle uh, around yourself, and then pray for you know revival for everybody in the circle. So I think it's the first place you know it you know it that that starts. I, I do think that there are churches that are that are salt and you know and light. I think that that this church clearly is is salt and light through being a biblical church, through proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the scriptures on a regular basis, people's lives being you know being transformed. Uh, um, so I, I clearly would would affirm that. I think where it gets confusing, like you're saying, I, mean, I mentioned some of these things tonight, like the Christianity as a whole. Um, you know, George Barna talks about all the Christians that, you know, that, that are here in, you know, in America. I think there's probably a lot of moral people. There are people that have, you know, uh, Christian underpinnings, but genuine, blood-bought, born-again Christians, that, that number is, is probably a lot less than, than might be out there. Why? Well, the only thing that makes a Christian, you know, is the gospel and, you know, the Spirit of God, you know, through the gospel. So that's, that's the part that, that's, you know, Clay and I were just talking about this even before service, that, that there is this tension that God doesn't remove, you know. So in one sense, you should do everything that you can possibly do to stand against evil, uh, whether that is abortion or whether that is homosexuality or sexual sin or whatever else it is. And, and obviously in our uh, country and culture that includes that includes boating that includes you know writing that includes all of those activities so nothing i'm saying would 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 go against that you know in any way but that's not where the hope is that's not what is going to fix the culture a biblical church and the gospel is the only thing that will actually do that so there's where the tension comes so how much do i pay attention here and how much do you know i work over here and and I think it's, it's kind of like sanctification. You're commanded to do both. You're commanded to elect biblical leaders, you know, um, and you're commanded to vote, you know, in that way. But you're not trusting in them. You're not thinking that somehow those laws are going to, you know, fix things. 
whether it was probably in your day when the moral majority, when Ronald Reagan, who was an amazing president, you know, rose, there was the moral majority movement, and it didn't fix anything because, or everything because the, you know, the issue is in the heart. Of course, there's all kinds of things obviously moving around, and, and you have really bad uh, you know, political leadership you know, right now. Um, I mean, I, I couldn't say it any better than MacArthur did six or eight months ago. I mean, the Democratic Party is godless, and I don't say that from, you know, paying attention to, you know, I'm saying their platform is, you know, is that. You, you, you can't promote some of the things that are there. But you could probably put a number of Republicans in that category, too. And, and so what do we do? We have to know the truth and, and stand, you know, for the truth, do the things that not, not leave those, those things to the world, but, but the transforming power is in the gospel. It's in the word. Um, and why is the church so weak? I think I addressed some of those things tonight because there's lack of doctrine, lack of preaching, you know, lack of, you know, those kinds of things. And so I'm always, you know, pulled in, you know, in, in those directions. The, I think they're, they're the danger of the two extremes. I mean, the danger of of not worrying about any of that and just letting leaving that to you know to the pagans, um, then it, it it will you know putrefy quicker and you know and and faster. Uh, just look at Portland or you know some of places like that. And I was in then Memphis a couple of weeks ago and and I was really thankful to get back to you know to Lynchburg and some of the blessings that you know that that are part of that. Um, but I don't want I, uh, so I don't want to uh, to abandon that because I'm commanded by God to be you know, to be a a good citizen and and be His representative in you know in, in in those ways. But I don't want attempting to fix that and recover that to distract me from you know the the main thing, which will actually transform people and you know and help people. So in one sense, it's like uh, it should be common sense for a Christian. To be a Christian everywhere, including your voting and including the world and, and standing for that. But, you know, but activism in, in some of those ways, what does activism mean? You know, putting all your hopes in that basket is probably going to leave, leave you, you know, sorely disappointed. The only hope is going to be you know, the gospel. When is God coming? Will he bring revival again? I don't know. You know. Is there a deep state? Did Donald Trump lose the election? I don't know. I have no idea. And even if I did know, there's really nothing I can do about it. But what I do know is that Jesus Christ is on the throne, and his word is true, and his gospel transforms people. And I'm commanded to, to live on this earth and do certain things uh, as a Christian, um, but my hope is not here. You know, it's, it's, it's in eternity. So I think that's the... At least the wrangling that goes on in, in my heart, and you may feel, you know, some of the same things. So. Well, it's six fifteen. So if you have more comments or questions, you'll save them for Mark next time. You ask him the really hard ones, and uh, he'll. Let me close us in a word of prayer. Father, we love you. We thank you so much that you saved us. We do pray that you would. Keep us humble, help us see, help us discern. Um, we are not uh, 
people who understand the truth because we're smarter than anybody else. We were exactly what Romans 5 described until you opened our eyes by your grace and your sovereign love. So I pray that you would just choose to use us however you see fit and that we would, we would show your love to the extent we can to others and um, to be as biblical as possible in governing our lives and in the world around us. Um, and thank you for this biblical church. Help it to remain that way in Jesus' name. Amen.